Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS and appearing as both a guest and a host on today's show is the pineapple dodging Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, hello. Out of context, that will sound I think pineapple dodgers are quite a good nickname. I mean, I, yeah, I would dodge a pineapple. You have to. Yeah, I would. We haven't talked to Alf for a while but you know how Alf's I doing I know but I didn't know when I when I wanted to I, ask you well this makes it sound like it's going to be terrible news I just I have had you, very you, little sleep you've because, not slept yeah because Alf didn't have very much sleep he doesn't like the storm it was a terrible storm I don't know if it was one storm rolling around and around and around all night or several storms and what does he do in the storm he just yowled a bit and was just very unsettled so we had to bring him up to our bedroom but then he was even still not settling and so he's also enormous so he sort of thunders around the room like dropping to the ground getting up again repeating it's like living with a baby elephant yeah and it was and you were you annoyed uh no because he was just so scared and how is he when the storm stops? Fine. He's fine. He was absolutely thrilled this morning. <laughs> that nothing you? had happened. <laughs> yeah. It's, this uh. is like having a child, basically. <laughs> it's good preparation dogs, I think, in some ways. Um, now, listen, if you want to uh, subscribe to the TLS, a couple of codes for you. If you live in the USA or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. That's podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19 that's the dash tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19 and you can get five issues for just five pounds or five dollars coming up today thea is going to be communicating using her words but discussing the cultural history of gestures as an italian she is unimprovably qualified to do this plus what do we make of chaucer these days and what did he get up to when he was not writing memorable poetry Julia Boffy joins us to tackle that subject with full devout courage, as the man himself might say. And I didn't do a medieval accent there. <laughs> nearly, uh, though. Nearly, yeah. yeah. We'll talk about that. <laughs> and it's almost exactly 50 years since the Stonewall Uprising in New York, a pivotal moment in gay rights that I knew pretty little about. Thankfully, Hugh Ryan will give us the full story.
Here's a Thea-themed joke for you. What do you call an Italian in handcuffs? Speechless. Yes, today we'll be exploring the not entirely podcast-friendly world of gesture and body language. Thea has reviewed two books, including Francois Karadek's Dictionary of Gestures and written a lovely piece, it's a beautiful thing, about the cultural history of non-verbal communication. The existence of body language is a universal thing, but its local application is very different. So a sign that might mean thank you in England can say be a sexual insult in Greece. But where does it all come from and why have we developed it? Good questions and Thea can stop me blathering to tell us some answers. So Thea, I don't know the answer to this question. Why did you, did you get this commission simply because you were Italian? <laughs> a healthy bit of stereotyping. Yeah. Oh, Thea, oh it's um, about hand gestures. Thea's Italian. She'll, <laughs> yeah, exactly. she'll be able to do this. Uh, I think it was a mixture of that possibly, but also my colleagues know that I'm I'm a lover of false friends, linguistic false friends and and there are plenty of those. Okay, like explain that. What, what do you mean? Well, that's you sort of alluded to to them there in your introduction. It's it's things like yes, uh, you know, if you put your hand, your palm out flat to say thanks because you're driving in in Greece or something. Yeah. It's an obscenity. You're Isn't insulting it's someone. It's a shocking obscenity. It's a shocking obscenity. It's saying that I want your sister to be raped well, five times. Well, no, so it's the mutsa, which is an offence in itself. And then you can, François Karadek, who's the, the author of this dictionary, That's how I pronounce adds, it as well. uh, <laughs> adds the detail that if you want to make it even worse, you can spread your fingers and those five fingers then add up to the number of rapes that your sister will receive. So do not... So do not on your holiday up, in Greece. Hold your hand anyone. out and spread your fingers. Exactly. And there are just so many of those that I find really interesting. And growing up, I, I used loads and, and... Well, that's why I'm interested. So why do you think Italians use their hands so much? Well, that's a really... I can't give you an answer. There's, because a, great, it's, it's there's very, a great answer in this. It's, well, it's, it's a very... It's a, there are lots of different theories for it. I mean, the first thing to say is that as long as there has been a study of gesture, we can trace it back to Italy. Some of the earliest studies of, of the field uh, were in Italy. In, in Naples, for example, there's one from the 1800s, a very famous one by a canon called Andrea de Iorio. He studied Neapolitan gestures on the streets, you know, in the busy port and, and the, the labyrinthine streets of, of, of Naples. And he decided that he, he was sure that you could trace these many of these gestures back to the ancient Greeks an almost direct route because he was saying, look, we're finding all of these little bits of pottery in Pompeii and Herculaneum. And you can see in those images of these ancient Greeks that they're performing many of the same gestures. Why there would be so many gestures in Italy, and we'll come back to this, I'm sure, because there is some stereotyping going on. I mean, it's, it's mostly been, I think, by very clever people, it's been kind of discredited. But there's always a bit of truth behind these things. Yeah, and the other um, idea is that, that Italy has this tradition of... Has, has Yeah, exactly. So, you know, in the Roman Empire, one theory is that it allowed people to communicate across language barriers. Think of the size of the, Roma, of the Roman Empire, how yeah. many languages it, it encompassed. And you can see why that would be necess necessary. Another theory is that, you know, Italy was at the, the centre of so much global commerce, busy marketplaces, Genova, Naples, Venice, all of these languages coming together. Yeah. Having a lively repertoire of gesture would maybe allow you to catch the eye of someone to say, oh, I've got a better one than him, or yeah. whatever that means. <laughs> well, yeah, I want to get let's to move that. Move on. No, let's not move on things. I, I, I like that because isn't it? Is it? Is there a political aspect to Italian gesticulation where you do kind of say, I've got a better one than yes, him? Yes, uh, It's is. often quite sexual. It's often quite male. It, is, is there it kind of reflective of a power dynamic that still persists in the country? I think. Well, I think, and that that's 
what I conclude after very many words yeah. <laughs> is that at the heart of it is it's a question of status. How we express ourselves is always a question of status. It's who gets to say what about whom and how they say it. And Italy has has a, a very rich culture of getting away with things, for one thing, whether it's tax evasion or... These are massive generalisations. I'm sure I'm going to make very many people very angry. But, you know, as well, someone fine. who grew up female yeah. in, 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 a, yeah. in a quite backward gender context, there's a whole roster of gestures that you can use to say, oh, that woman's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 for, and also that food is delicious. There's a lot of overlap between the two things. And presumably there. the physical communication you are to a certain, you know, manspreading is the kind of the more, yeah. but, you know, there is a power dynamic because if I gesture at you and it's very striking. I remember being in Italy with English women and even as a kid with English girls, girls get treated and they get gestured at. They mm. get sort of physically handled yeah sometimes literally sometimes metaphorically in a yeah. certain way so there clearly is a pilot pad on it well because- i i would feel i think if you'd asked me this two or three weeks ago i would have felt much more hesitant to say what i just said but i did just come back from naples yeah and i was wearing summer clothing and let me tell you that it made a difference. It made a difference that I was walking down the street and did you feel compared it? to my husband or yeah. or my male relatives. And did it feel different to London? Uh, yes, yes. And there must be. I mean, I don't think you have to be a cod psychologist to say there is a, no. a, a there is a distinction being drawn here. And if it is physical, because the physicality of the gesture seems to tap into a, a world where physicality matters. Yeah. Perhaps more than where Britain, you might say, you know, again, generalisation, where it's unspoken code and sort of tacit social mores are more of a feature because that's the that's the w- environment that Britain's historically had. Yeah, that's probably their fair generalisation. Yeah, well, I mean, I couldn't help but be struck as I was reading this dictionary of gesture. At well, a how many of the gestures that he he chronicles, and and we should say he he travels around the world from his. It's it's quite anecdotal. He doesn't. He says I didn't have the budget to to actually travel. So a lot of it's anecdotal. I you know I did it from my study and spoke to lots of friends who have travelled. That sort of thing. But a lot of the gestures are Italian. A lot of the the very sexual ones are Italian. A lot of the food ones are Italian. Yeah. But also a lot of the homophobic ones are Italian. So we have sex. We have discrimination. We have evasion we have all of these things that come up throughout this dictionary and you know i'm i'm minded to find them i'm sure there's a bit of that going on but they're they're there <laughs> who reads this dictionary there because you you read it to review it obviously why would anyone read this story is it a, is it a useful dictionary in the way that a, a, a verbal dictionary is useful in italy there is a history of having textbooks for foreign language students learning Italian. And they're not tongue-in-cheek, they're actual textbooks. They say, you know, this is a dimension of the language that you can study and this is how we'll do it, A, B, C, D. This is not that at all. This book here, this dictionary, is it's tongue-in-cheek, it's light-hearted. I mean, the guy, François Karadek, he's, a, he's you'll love this, he's an Ulipo. He was an Ulipo member, Another a pataphysician. Yeah. His previous books are an encyclopedia of slang and practical jokes. Yeah. And, you know, it, so it, it is very irreverent. But it is are we also going to very a lipo, Are we going to mention a lipo every, every single every episode? episode yeah, yeah okay. I think so. Well, well done for this one. So, <laughs> but so, so is a is a sort of sort of person who you know we've got a review in the paper of Dre's English language, which is kind of a, a user's guide to, to English from a copy editor. Is it that sort of person who's interested in language? I suppose it is. Yeah, because I mean, at the heart of all of this is this idea that gesture predates 
language. This was a theory that certainly some of the early Italians, and I point out in, in, there's a kind of a bit of a scattershot introduction to this dictionary. And he mentions some of the really interesting texts and works by, for example, the British physician John Bulwer, who was writing in the 1600s. There's the canon Andrea de Iorio, who I mentioned, mentioned before. Uh, well, who he doesn't mention is Giovanni Bonifacio. And that's interesting in a sense because he he's a really clear precursor to this work. He was all about finding the original language and he thought that that was gesture. It was yeah. a kind of a pre-verbal way that communicated. So that kind of was something that they were talking about in the 1600s. Then in the 19th century, it sort of came back into fashion and people started to talk about that again, the original language. And then it went out of fashion again. And then as there were huge, huge works in primatology yeah. and evolution, it came back on stream. And that's when gesture as I understand it, came to be as we know it now, as this modern field, which is incredibly lively yeah. uh, and has loads going on. I mean, they have international conferences. There's a journal called Gesture, uh, funnily enough, which appears three times a year because there's Good. that, there's there's that, that much, much stuff yeah. to say yeah. <laughs> or to gesticulate wildly about. Uh, and those papers, forms of index finger use in the development of pointing. Well, yeah. Does seeing gesture lighten or increase the load? Effects of processing gesture on verbal and visuospatial cognitive load? Yes, I... Yes. <laughs> I don't like the double use of load there. No, 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 no. They could, have, they could have worked they could on have, that. Yeah. Words, at, words are not their forte, clearly. No, that's true, that's true. I'm looking at the, your, your article here, and if a lipo gets mentioned mm. in the TLS a lot, I'll tell you what else gets mentioned yeah. a lot. The... American sitcom Friends. Yeah, the long time running American sitcom People at the TLS, Friends. there's a guy, Andrew, who is a Friends aficionado. Who I'm holding responsible for what you're about to explain. Yeah, so, so basically, in, your piece is illustrated by a giant picture of Ross and Rachel from Friends from 1997 in The One with Joey's New Girlfriend. Why is that there, Theo? Because... You do talk about Friends. I do. Well, because for me, this is, I mean, again, tongue in cheek here, but uh, it was a sort of a, a moment of popular recognition here that gesture was a dimension <laughs> worth yeah. you know worth focusing on so the two siblings ross and monica geller have this private swear gesture yeah. which is a way of giving the finger without actually giving the finger and it consists in bumping the two fists together on the little finger side yeah. twice vigorously yeah. so if i don't know i wonder what the sound effect would be but it's like this yeah, yeah, that works. That, that, that's pretty good. Yeah, uh, which does feel Italian, even as you as as they do it. Uh, yeah. it does feel like a kind of Italian. The, the vigor of it and the, the strength of it somehow. Yeah, and they both do it, from an equality point of view. It's interesting that she, Monica, who's a stronger yeah. figure than than Ross, does it with as much vigor. Yeah, and that it's a sort of a secret sibling language is is quite interesting. Yeah, and I and, and gesture, and that's the problematic nature of gesture, in that it can mean different things to different people. Exactly, because. That's true locally and societally, and then presumably it's true even more closely than that. You exactly. Know, what, what you can say what you want it to mean. Yeah. There's a very funny joke in Dodgeball, which I watch. Which, again, kid. you've referenced yeah. a number oh of times God, on the yeah. podcast now. Yeah. Anyway, Dodgeball. I watch Dodgeball. <laughs> and there is the fat, geeky member of the Dodgeball team, and he's got this wife who is really mean to him, who is from an eastern country. I, I don't know which one it is because you don't really see her. But anyway, he waves at her when he's playing Dodgeball, and she looks at him and she holds up the loser, the L for loser, mm. and he turns to uh, his L for love, L for love. She's always doing that, <laughs> L for love. And that's the point, you can transfer exactly, meanings. Exactly, there's so much ambiguity to play we with. We could have had a picture of that. Uh, you did review another book as well, Thea, as you might expect in a piece that's nearly 5,000 words. You didn't just cover <laughs> one book. That. No, I love it. I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed it. Silent History 
Body Language and Nonverbal Identity, 1860 to 1914 by yes. Peter K. Anderson. That's an oddly specific period. Yes. Why? The why is because 1860 is, he argues, it's the time when photography really exploded and it also changed in style there was enough there were developments in the equipment which made it more widely used also there was this change in style which brought street photography it used to be very portrait based and it used to be only you know elite members of society could afford to get their portrait taken or you know you'd save up your whole life for your one photograph but so no in, in the 1860s photography started to be scattered about much more widely and so we end up with people seeing themselves more seeing images of other people more and and with that you learn to kind of project and pose you know and and, so and you start to think about self-image so if you think of the word image for example that's kind of that's the image of the photograph but yeah. it's also what you're doing in it to project you and know? presumably because you're conscious of how you might look what is an acceptable way of standing or being becomes a stereotype becomes a gendered thing as well women can't stand in a certain way because it looks unfeminine men have to stand in a certain way because it looks masculine gender but so much in terms of class Um, I think especially probably if you were at the lower end of the social ladder if you were being photographed that would be your one moment to say who you are to commit your legacy to print so he, he does a very interesting thing oh I should say it ends in 1914 I assume because that's when modernity arrived proper. Yeah. The, the start of the First World and War. And then modernism that followed. Exactly. Instance. Whereas before then, he, he argues that we're sort of trying to figure ourselves out and figure out what it means to be modern people in the world. But so he does this interesting thing where he basically, as more photographs were about, people started to get much more self-conscious. There'd also been a boom in etiquette manuals. Yeah. I mean, they, those had been going for centuries, but in the 19th century in particular, there were loads and loads of them. So people became very, very self-aware. So... In a sense, people were being told in these etiquette manuals, tighten your body, don't flail around, you know, don't let yourself go, don't look uncouth, don't gesticulate, that's what common people do. And so there were sort of less gestures about, but what gestures there were were being captured because photography was everywhere now on the street. And so he, Peter K. Anderson, breaks the book into a number of main poses that he observes, and he observes them in England, in Sweden, and in Austria, and parts of southern Germany as well. And those are photographs that he finds in in various archives, and he also looks at the popular press, so magazines like Punch and the Swedish and German equivalents. And he breaks them all out into different poses. So there's Posing with a walking stick, licensed withdrawal, which he he uses to to describe poses assumed by women that appear shrinking or constricted. And I sort of imagine that a bit like the kind of heroin chic pose that we had in the 90s, you know, where you'd kind of turn your toes in and you'd look vulnerable and a bit withdrawn. Also, maybe this argument that women aren't allowed to own a space. Exactly, which is is completely opposed by the next pose, which is the female akimbo pose, which I think is just the a brilliant name Good pose. Uh, but it's one or both hands placed on the hips so you can you can see that very clearly in your mind and then there's the the waistcoat pose yeah. which involves sort of putting your hooking your thumbs under your armpits you're imaginary so you're exactly yeah. where where the arms of your waistcoat would have been because you were so refined that you had a three-piece suit sort yeah. of thing and then finally there's hands in trouser pockets and he goes into all of these in you know minute detail do you think this adds to the sum of human knowledge all of this stuff i think it does i think it does i found it really fascinating to immerse myself in i mean there's a very simple point that anderson makes 
at the outset. He talks about the human body as a tool of cultural adaptation, a vital instrument of expression. He says it's an essential topic for historians because access to the written word, art, education and politics were limited to certain groups, but all humans in all historical periods have had access to a body. Yeah, very true. Finally, the favourite gesture? I mean, this is um, not a very good podcast question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. This isn't one that I mention in the piece, oh, uh, so I have to think about how to describe it. Basically, you hold your one hand... Uh, Everyone do this at home, I'm going to try and do it One hand vertically, palm facing a wall, yeah. say, and keep it flat. And then you take the other one and you put it perpendicular, still flat, yeah. and then you hit that one into the... You hit them into each other. Yeah. So you're making kind of like a... What is it? Like a T on its side shape. Yeah, yeah. And that means... And this is an Italian one. That means scram, get lost. Get lost. But it also could mean, shall we scram? Shall we get lost? Together. So, well, yeah, or, you know, as a group, like, are we done here? Let's go, let's go. But, you know, so that's also open to interpretation. It's whether you're directing it at a person or whether you're including people in the action or not. Well, it's, a, it's a minefield. It is, but that is, <laughs> it brings us a nice extent. So I can do that now and say, get lost, but I don't mean you should get yeah, lost. Yeah, let's, let's go, let's but, scram. But this item now, yep. we can now both collectively scram. Exactly, sound effect. <laughs> Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I studied Chaucer at school for A-level and can just remember hours of an ineffably boring English teacher whose voice was always pitched with this sort of nasal whine, reading out line after line of the Canterbury Tales. And yet, such was the personality, the character of the poetry, that something broke through and I was able to enjoy Chaucer once my schooling was over. So who was this man? Who is he to us? And what exactly did he get up to in his eventful life? This was a man deeply involved in government at a time when that was an increasingly dynamic and interesting thing to be doing. Julia Boffy this week has a look at a raft of Chaucer books, posing and answering questions about him as she goes. She joins Thea and me now. Julia, hello. Hello. One of the books you review is called Chaucer, A European Life. Maybe let's start there. What sort of European experience did he have? He travelled hugely. I think this is one of the really surprising things for 21st century people about their medieval counterparts. The amount of travel that went on. 
She also went on diplomatic missions because he was a member of aristocratic households, things of this kind. He travelled extensively in Europe, so went to places like Genoa, Navarre, northern Italy, And was he, a se- was he a senior figure? Was he a sort of man to be reckoned with? I think he was a figure to be reckoned with, but not especially senior. And even as a young man, he would have expected to travel and have expected to go abroad in the retinue of the people he was serving. And um, this seems to have been the experience for most people. Where, where do you see it affecting the work? What can we sort of point to, if anything? Well, I suppose the obvious things are he had the chance to learn about the things people were writing abroad. He would have grown up speaking and knowing French anyway, given the sort of social level from which he came in England. But he would have perhaps met, certainly talked to people who knew French poets whose work he came to admire. As he travelled in Italy, he would have heard about people like Dante, Petrarch, Boccaccio, seen some of the books, seen some of the manuscripts. No chance. Did they they coincide at all? Not not entirely. Certainly not Dante. Uh, there, There are sort of question marks about what exactly the nature of his contact with some of the other poets might have been. I mentioned this question at the beginning, and you mentioned it at the beginning of your review. What is Chaucer to us, collectively? Not necessarily to you, who's an expert in Chaucer, because that's a rather more complicated (laughs) answer, but now, in 21st century Britain, who is Chaucer? He's a mixture of things. That's exactly the, the, the question we'd all like to get to the bottom of. I suppose, for some people, he is still the father of English poetry, in inverted commas, but that's a term that's full of difficulty now for all sorts of reasons. You know, what's the tradition of English poetry? Why should it have a father, particularly? So he's that on the one hand. On the other hand, for the person in the street, he's probably someone they think of who churned out sort of rude, funny stories and who they might feel they can actually relate to quite easily because the rudeness and the funniness is is still perceptible. And did those different images of Chaucer, those different ways of receiving him, come about at presumably at wildly different times. When did the father of, of British poetry come about? Quite quickly, I think, in the 15th century. It doesn't take very long before people start talking about him as their master and their father and father Chaucer and things like that. Possibly the coincidence of there being other poets in London writing in the early 15th century who had access to Chaucer's works sort of began to construct this image and then as those works circulated more widely and as the works of his followers circulated more widely the father image grew and and sort of embedded itself. He gets slightly eclipsed by Shakespeare then. Well he does yes by the time you get to the 16th and 17th century and indeed that that edition by Spate in the very late 16th century early 17th century in the second edition takes on the sort of ambivalent views of what Chaucer was because some of the material that prefaces Chaucer's works in that edition talks about Chaucer as you know renowned for offering people filthy delights and things (laughs) like that but that's the great charm of him I mean like I said it nearly killed it for me yeah yeah being taught and I was taught you get you do a bit of the prologue at a level and then wife of Bath's tale and yet I've read wife of Bath's tale for pleasure since then Mm. I did at university a bit as well the thing that that strikes me as so modern about it is the irony in it, it is poking fun, it's self-conscious, mm. it is very, very modern. I mean, once you get past the language, which isn't very difficult, I don't think, it's a very... The vernacular has a connection to our own vernacular such that once you get into the spirit of yes. it, it's pretty straightforward to read. It's not much more difficult than reading Shakespeare. No, I think people actually forget how difficult reading Shakespeare is and they think they can do that and they can't do the Middle tra- English. But, but, but you've just got to 
let yourself go with it, really. And do you think there's a modernity to it? Because it's sort of, you know, it, it's a bit postmodern, the Canterbury Tale, you know, the, the, the narrator's a character and the host, and, you know, it, it's playing with its own sense Certainly, of Certainly, yes, so that, that self-consciousness about what narrative is and what, what narrators can and can't do, I, th- I think it does fit very well with people's sense of postmodern ways of constructing narratives. And th- some of the dream visions as well, where Chaucer's talking about... Uh, his own anxieties in writing and his own anxieties in relation to the audiences he's addressing and what they might be thinking of what he's up to. So do we get a sense then of, of what he was hoping to achieve, what he wanted to, to create? In part, but he does sort of always manage to escape, I think, from confronting you in any direct way. There's there's a point in The House of Fame, one of the Dream Vision poems, where Chaucer's taken to a miraculous palace of fame and then transported from there to a a rather different place, which is the House of Rumour. And someone accosts him and says, sort of, what are you doing here? And he says, I don't want to be famous. I don't want people to go around talking about me. Um, I'm quite happy just to sort of get on with what I'm doing and not be very well known. Did you buy that? Well, it's a curious thing to say, but he does sort of escape from the fronts he offers in various of the works. And he wasn't circulated much when he was alive. So, I mean, had he wanted to be read, he could have, he was in a position to make that happen, I would have thought. Presumably, yes, yes. It does seem a very, I'm I'm endlessly struck by him and Shakespeare, really, because at some level they must have known how brilliant they were because they were writing better stuff than anyone else around them. (laughs) And and more. More, and kind of, and, and almost objectively better stuff yes. and yet Shakespeare never cared about collecting his plays he did, you know, did the sonnets kind of yeah. half-heartedly and then never bothered collecting his own plays and there's no point Chaucer put together I mean he never even finished the Canterbury Tales and he never seemed to care about not finishing no, the Canterbury this, Tales No, this, this is the curious thing and So what's the this, reason? What do you what, think? Well, yeah. Couldn't that just be a, a sort of a faltering conviction faltering sense of, of what you're doing if you're doing something you know, that's better than everyone else that suggests you're doing something new something different if you're doing something new something different your confidence has to be right up there for you to be able to see it through. How many people have aborted works on on their laptops and how many of them might be amazing? Yes, that's true, isn't it? Some sense of self-doubt or some some sense of not quite knowing how this is going to be received that might just make him stop. Maybe there are continuations to these things that we don't have as well. That's that's the other big uncertainty. The texts are in such a sort of messy state in some respects. And also presumably the concept of an author even yes. by Shakespearean time, wasn't even there, you know, because there was a lot more collaboration. The idea of author as sacrosanct figure. Yes. Was that true of Chaucer's time? Was there, um, but there, there was, like I said, Dante was known as a figure, wasn't yes, he? Yes, he was. And obviously you've got poet laureate in Italy and you've got in Chaucer's House of Fame a sense that there are famous authors and famous poets who have some sort of reputation for what they did. I'm sure you're right that the notion of authorship was something that was still forming yeah, it's just a curious combination of quite... When you read The Canterbury Tales, there's a swagger to it. Yeah, yeah. And he was a swaggering guy in the sense of, as you, as, you know, wandering around Europe, you know, in a prominent household, meeting interesting mm. people. He wasn't... You can't imagine being particularly bashful. And yet, canonically, the, I mean, Troilus and Crusades are a complete poem, I suppose, and very long and yes, very ambitious. Yes, yes, But is there any chance whatsoever there is a completed Canterbury Tales sitting 
Someone, someone's would, at it. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be lovely, yes. Yeah, there's no chance well, of that, presumably. Well, um, there, there are a variety of arguments about this because obviously a plan is announced that, that these pilgrims are going to tell tales on the way to Canterbury and then they're going to tell tales on the way back and someone's going to win. But it's quite clear that that plan was probably never really achievable because it would have meant a huge book for a start that would have been very difficult physically to hold together. And So the, why say it then? I suppose it's part of the joke of having the host set this tale-telling competition up. But obviously the point of getting them to Canterbury is getting them to some sort of spiritual destination as well. And once they have that in mind, it's not somewhere they're going to be seen to come back from. We have a piece by Mary Flannery, which is relevant to this because she's talking about Game of Thrones just ending and everyone's saying how rubbish the ending yes. is. And she says well, it's really hard to end big works of writing successfully. And look at Chaucer, Canterbury Tales never ending, mm. probably never possible to end this. Mm. And there's no structure even to suggest that there's even a partial ending in, in mind. And he has other, some of the dream visions just abruptly kind yes. of wake up as if he's just woken up. Is ending and completion maybe, again, a bit like authorship, not a, not a medieval notion? That may in part be so, and it may also be connected with the fact of some works in the Middle Ages being delivered orally or performed in some way, so you can, you can sort of bring it to a close without necessarily ending it in the formal way we would expect a poem or a, a novel or a narrative of some because kind not, to end up. you're not trying to turn it into a commodity yes because it, yeah, it, it is yeah, what it is yeah you mentioned one of the most terrifying things i've ever heard read in the pages of the tls the canterbury tales for the archers yes yes that is uh, i don't oh. think it would be covered in ross's column do you no about I mean, what, what the hell is that <laughs> it was <laughs> to put it bluntly yeah. the, the archers apparently do a christmas play is performed in ambridge every year yeah. and you know on, on different you're an archers fan julie not particularly. No. I listen from time to time so you know, when I'm doing the washing up. I uh, very pointedly turn it off as soon as the music comes on. Do you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Hoping to send a signal to someone yes. somewhere. And I, I present front row once a week. I only hear the last minute of the matches. So I'm only familiar with the... Well, I did listen. I thought, you know, I, I professionally well, I had to listen because I knew people would be talking yeah. to me about it. So I listened. And actually, I thought they sort of did a jolly good job. It was... They, they played up the sex, the comedy, they got a lot of magic in somehow. They somehow got it into their heads that Chaucer was magic. I mean, maybe that was a, a sort of Game of Thronesy thing. I don't know that there's got to be some supernatural element to this. Um, different people in Ambridge took different roles in a series of the plays and they performed them. And it, it was sort of listenable to, and I suppose it, what it told you was that narratives can be dressed up and appropriated and recast in different ways. It also shows ways. how common currency it remains. Mm. I mean, yes. Presumably they didn't have yes. to explain too much. No, that's right. This is the Canterbury right. Tales the Canterbury by Tales. Chaucer. Yeah. People have a sense yes. of... Well, it's done at school, surely, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, I did it at A-level. Not everyone does anymore, but, oh, they, right. you know, they may know the name. What's it like, just finally, when you... How do you pitch Chaucer to students? Do you have to try and make him relevant? Is that or do you do well, the father of English poetry line no, and say well, you, you have to read No, this you don't do that. that. <laughs> you don't do that. You, make them run for the hills. Yes, you, I, I try not to say he's relevant and he's full of things about fashion and sex and everything else. Yeah. I try to say you're going to find this quite hard and quite different. I try not to make the language a barrier. I mean, my experience was that I had to sort of sink or swim with reading Chaucer and I wasn't given very many 
aids to help mm. me. I just had to sort of start and keep going. And eventually I sort of worked out what what was useful in terms of making it more comprehensible. So I think to, to sort of throw them in there and say, well, see if you think this is interesting. And it is it's the way that works. And it, I kind of agree with that because yeah. although you don't want it to be you know, everything has to be relevant. And relevance is one of the great curses of the age, yes, arguably. Yes. And there's a whole programme to ha- be had discussing yes, that as, a, as yes. a concept. You know, I have to say, this is a bit, wife of math is a bit me too-y. Mm. Mm. Relatable. Mm. Yeah. Yes, that, exactly uh, that word. But yeah. it is fun. I mean, the fact that it mocks people, I think, is the thing that makes it modern. Yes. Canterbury Tales particularly, yes. that, you know, it sets up these characters and it digs them in a sly, mm. fa- there's a slyness to it, there's mm. an archness to it, which isn't relevant, but it is a recognisable spirit that has lasted to our age as well. Exactly so, yes. And and obviously you can sort of play the game of substituting today's stereotypical butts of criticism for some of those pilgrims who tell tales. I love a bit of Chaucer. And so um, (laughs) thank you so much for for writing this piece and, and joining us today. Thank you. Pride marches are today a summer fixture for many of us, but this year seems an especially good time to look back to what is generally accepted as a first gay pride march, which took place on June 28, 1970, in New York City, with simultaneous marches taking place in LA, San Francisco and Chicago. The date was very specific. The marches were set to commemorate one year exactly since the Stonewall Uprising of the previous year when, as Hugh Ryan puts it in this week's TLS, a group of pissed-off queers resisted routine police harassment at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village. Days and weeks of protests ensued as the push for gay rights ramped up. The rest, as we say, is history. New York's Pride still takes place on Stonewall's anniversary weekend, this weekend marking the 50th year. But it's the particularly complicated nature of this history, the history of Stonewall and perhaps of queer history more generally, that we're here to talk about today. Hugh Ryan has reviewed a number of books, among them compilations of writing and photography books, published to mark the 50th anniversary of this pivotal moment in LGBTQ activism. And he joins us on the line from New York now. Hello, Hugh. Hi, Thea. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Let's start by setting the scene, shall we? So, I mean, what happened or what can we know for sure happened on June 28th, 1969? Well, what we know for sure is that the police came to raid a bar in the West Village called the Stonewall Inn. This was a rather common occurrence, police raids, not just in New York, but of LGBT bars all around the country. Uh, We know that there were people inside who were arrested, uh, many members of the bar staff, actually. We know that a straight folk singer named Dave Von Ronk was arrested for resisting arrest, I believe. We know that after the arrest started, as they were trying to get people from the bar into a large police wagon. Resistance started from a crowd. Here, of course, is where all the stories start to break apart, right? As soon as things get really complicated, uprising implies all of this action, motion, commotion. And so, of course, this is where all the stories start to break apart. Some say that as a butch lesbian was being led into a police car, she managed to escape repeatedly, yelled at the crowd for people to help her. People started throwing things and helping her escape from the cops. Other people say that it was actually a trans woman or a drag queen who threw the first shoe or brick or penny. Many people say that there was 
a kind of joyous feeling to this first night of Stonewall, that it was a, a bubbling up. Uh, that's why some people prefer uprising as opposed to riot, which sounds a little more angry and militant, uprising a little more joyous and liberatory. But we know that it caused days of unrest in the village and that it got attention that earlier events of LGBT resistance to police harassment did not get that kind of attention. Uh, why did it, this provoke? Because it was a mafia-owned bar, like many bars were, who had a deal with the police. The police, mm-hmm. like you said, were relatively frequent raiders, but did it in a more seemly fashion earlier on in the evenings often. Why did this particular raid excite this particular outcome do you think well you know the word that i always return to is routine i don't think that stonewall that night that raid necessarily had too many features that made it specific that you could have known that this was going to happen rather i think that it was an endless and recurring nature of events the way that this kind of harassment continued really from the end of World War II up until Stonewall. I I think we need to look at it as this sort of building of a powder keg that eventually explodes. And we know that it exploded at Stonewall. What we often forget is that it exploded again on International Women's Day in Greenwich Village when there was a a fairly pitched battle between uh, protesters, mostly women and queer people and cops. And then again in August of 1970 when the cops raided another gay bar in the village uh, and turned into multiple nights of rioting against the cops. And and participants in that riot, which was called the Haven Riot, actually say, no, it, it was a riot. It wasn't an uprising. We were smashing cars and setting things on fire. We thought it was the beginning of the revolution. We know that these events happened over and over again. I, I really do think of Stonewall as being that sort of inevitable explosion. Presumably, I mean, all of this, this confusion and this sort of stopping and starting of things is, is what made it take such a long time time for the first studies to start to appear. One of the ones you mentioned is Martin Duberman's book from 1994. That was quite a long time after events. Right. I mean, not only was it a long time after the events, but I think there wasn't a lot of contemporaneous coverage at the time to draw from. So there's a a big gap. And in that gap, there's not a lot of information. And why is that? Is it because there was a level of prejudice? You know, I've read bits of it where even people who were broadly supportive would use phrases that you would never accept now or expect now so even people who felt that that this may be part of a broader struggle for liberation for civil rights there wasn't necessarily a warmth towards these particular protesters Absolutely. I think in particular, the more gender variant that the protesters were, the more working class. You see, even in the Village Voice, which covers the Stonewall riots at the time, you get, as you said, a a very sarcastic attitude, even in the minor parts that are supportive. You know, it's queen bees are stinging mad. It's not taken seriously. And the participants are made fun of, even as they're being somewhat supportive or reported on. Because the kind of the accepted way of protesting up to that point was to make yourself look as straight as possible, wasn't it? People would go and pick it outside the headquarters of Time magazine or or wherever it was that they were going and they would, you know, the women would be instructed to wear very conventional clothing and, and the men likewise to look like office workers. Yeah, it was part of this idea that the homophile movement, which is the sort of broad writ LGBT groups that come before Stonewall, thought that by getting people to see them as being the same as straight people and getting experts, psychologists, theologians, politicians to say that LGBT people deserve tolerance, that that would be the way to gain equality. And Stonewall kind of takes a very different tact. And the people who come immediately after Stonewall, like the Gay Liberation Front, are much more 
aggressive, in-your-face, much more direct action in the street politics that are more similar to what was going on broadly with the left in America at the time, the anti-war protests, the black power movement, women's liberation, and less similar to the homophile movement, LGBT protests that had come before Stonewall. Because the argument is presumably the homophile movement you're talking about is to say we're all the same. And where you get to presumably by the end of the 70s is to say, no, no, we are different, but difference is acceptable, difference is okay, and actually difference is positive. And that's an entire switch of focus, isn't it, really? It is. And, you know, if you look at the homophile movement activists themselves, you see that many of them understood that they were different and that the life that they were sort of fighting for was not going to be exactly like mainstream life. But it was very important to them. They thought the only route to acceptance was this sort of centrist approach. And I think we see that struggle playing out in, you know, LGBT politics forever since. I was just joking with a friend this morning that Pete Buttigieg might not have much in common with Stonewall, but he certainly seems like the second coming of the Mattachine Society. That early homophile really has the right attitude, you know, is, is arguing for equality and justice, but from very much a place of I am not going to appear threatening. I have walked through all the correct straight institutions. All the right people have said that I'm good and therefore I'm acceptable. How iconic is Stonewall now then? How, how many? We'll get to the books maybe, but how much do you feel people need to be informed about this uprising, this movement? I, I was saying to Thea that growing up, I, I never came across it at all. I mean, maybe because Stonewall in this country is the name of a charity uh, that supports LGBT rights. And, and often people don't look behind Stonewall other than just that that's the name of a charity. How, how iconic does this remain in, in the States and more broadly? I think very iconic. I think, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and I certainly didn't hear about it until I got to college. But I think for the generation that is coming up now, queer and straight, Stonewall is like the moment from LGBTQ history that everyone is sort of expected to know at least a little bit about. And that little bit may entirely come from memes passed around on Facebook, but they're expected to know that much. I think the iconic nature of it is is worldwide. I mean, Berlin calls their Pride Parade Christopher Street Day. You know, (laughs) so strange. And the, the idea of everyone needing to know a little bit about Stonewall is also, it's kind of, it seems connected to um, the editor of, of one of the books that you look at, the Stonewall reader, Jason Bauman. Uh, he makes an interesting case for redefining Stonewall in a way that suggests that it's to kind of let more people into the story. Absolutely. I mean, I think that he takes this really expansive project that I think gets back to that idea of routine harassment that I was talking about. Not only does the Stonewall reader collect the voices of many people who were at Stonewall, either on the first night or subsequent nights of the uprising, but it collects a much larger picture of people who were active in the queer social and political scenes before, during, and after Stonewall. I think suggesting that Stonewall is the sort of tip of an iceberg. Uh, And when we focus on just the tip, we miss everything else that is happening or going on around it. And there's also a very strong drive, and I think this is true across the books that you're looking at. There's a general like decentering of the white cisgender male experience, which is how we automatically tend to think of Stonewall. Yeah, you know, in doing my research recently, I came across a story about a group of women who were imprisoned at the Women's House of Detention. Uh, This was a, a prison that used to be on the end of Christopher Street, so just a few blocks from Stonewall. And on the night of the Stonewall uprising, people said that they watched those women set fire to their belongings and throw them out the windows, tear mattresses apart and throw them out the windows while chanting gay power, gay power, gay power. They're not people that we usually consider part of the Stonewall riot, but 
clearly there was something happening in that prison, both internally to their situation and then to the way that they were contributing to what was happening on the street. You know, the New York Times two years ago wrote about the Stonewall uprising and they had to issue this correction saying there was at least one lesbian involved. <laughs> and <laughs> you look at the story of these women and you say, you know, maybe Stonewall isn't exactly what I thought it was, both the night of and the broader picture of it. I think there's so much more for us to know. Can I ask a terminology question? Because I did a thing about queer fiction on the radio yesterday. And one of the, um, people on Twitter objected to the phrase queer to describe a movement. And we've been using it today. Use it in your piece. Is it an entirely accepted piece of terminology to describe <laughs> a very broad thing? I mean, I, I, I was never quite sure how 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 contested a piece of terminology is it? Personally, I think if you've never had a fight about the word you want to use for LGBTQ sexuality, you're not really queer. <laughs> no one is ever happy with every word no. entirely. Yeah. And I understand that, right? They're all really charged. We develop the words that we use for ourselves, and they change every decade, basically. And so for me, I like the word queer because it doesn't foster a sense of specific identities, particularly looking back historically, where they're maybe not the same as how we use those words today. We think we know what we mean when we talk about a gay person or a transgender person or a lesbian. But, you know, you go back to the 70s and it gets a little fuzzy. You go back to the 40s, it's a little fuzzier. You go back to the 1800s and it doesn't make any sense. Queer, for me, sort of references any person whose sexual identity or gender identity is non-normative for their time. And it provides, I think, a broader envelope in which to consider all of these behaviors, which are being socially sanctioned. So queer is both broader, less specific, more historically accurate, and also, in a sense, more political, because it's always connected to an experience of marginalization. And it allows people not to feel excluded either deliberately or accidentally, which is which is presumably a, a great virtue. The movement around asexual and aromantic people was definitely not a very large part of the queer conversation when I was coming into the movement in the early 90s. And yet the label makes room for asexual and aromantic people who are now stepping up and much more visible and whose voices are being heard. And that's one of the great things about queer. And the, the growing and changing that you talk about there seems to be something that again kind of ties all of these books together because they're all they're all bringing different voices into the into the history of Stonewall, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what I love so much about both the Stonewall Reader and Mark Stein's Stonewall: A Documentary History is that they bring in a ton of voices, many of whom I think will be surprising to the people reading them or people they've heard of but didn't know actually had a connection to the riot. And I think that's great. Well, see, what a great pleasure it is talking to you about all this. Thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the weekend. Oh, you too. It's Pride. It's going to be a big one. Take care. Take care. Bye. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks to Julia Boffy, Hugh Ryan, and to Thea Qua Guest. Did you say Qua? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I heard someone say Quay. Oh. It's not right, is it? Oh, I don't know. I don't and think quay. so. You should never say Quay. It's no. just pretentious. <laughs> And but, yet. And yet, I've said it. I may <laughs> say it again. Grab a copy of the TLS where you can this week or subscribe so you never miss one. Lots of fun stuff from the medieval period and how it relates to today's TV and Hollywood. Ros Deneen and Andrew Irwin look at TV and radio. Ros does a pretty cool thing by eavesdropping the alfresco radio habits of her neighbours, which is worth checking out. Next week, we examine and celebrate all things American will try not to mention Trump. Until then, from Thea, qua host, I'm going to stop now, <laughs> and me, goodbye.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.